Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. It's so good to see you guys. Um, I gotta say, to start with, um, it is such a privilege and a joy to be a part of this community. A year and a half ago, my wife and I um, moved here um, from across the country started a a brand new job. We knew a few handful of people. We had a a wild, energetic one-year-old, and we were expecting another on the way. And this community has been so significant and meaningful to our lives. Um, People have served us, they've cared for us, they've brought us meals, they've helped us raise our kids. Um, It's just been such a privilege to be a part of this. So it is my honor to be able to preach to you today. This morning, we kick off a brand new sermon series on the life of David. David was a king of ancient Israel. He dates to the 10th century BCE, and his story can be found in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, if you're new to church and you haven't opened the Bible in your life, I would venture to say um, that you're probably familiar with, with who David is. Um, either you've been watching a sporting game and you've heard the analogy of David and Goliath, or For those of you who are a little more cultured, maybe you recognize the famous art that depicts this historic king. Like any person, David was a complex character and he had some flaws. Some of those flaws we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. But in general, David is known as one of, if not the most heroic characters of the Bible prior to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus actually identified himself as the son of David. All in all, this reference was used by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament 17 times. This morning, um, we are going to focus on the anointing of David, um, and then we're going to have four series after this. But before jumping into his anointing, this passage, this passage is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. A little bit of history, because there's 15 chapters before, and also just thrown into an Old Testament book, just a little bit of knowledge to get you guys ready. So a few things to note before we get started. One is, Israel was a nation belonging to God, but throughout their history, they were constantly being bullied. They had a strategic piece of land, and and throughout history, there was always bigger and more powerful nations that surrounded them. So whether it was Egyptians, Persians, Assyrians, Babylonians, you name it, Greeks, Romans, um, throughout their entire history, they were a bullied people. The second thing is that the nation of Israel chose not to have a king in the beginning. Instead, they were led by a high priest. This high priest would represent God to the people and would represent the people to God. In the book of 1 Samuel, the high priest was Samuel. And, um, and during his time, it was the Philistines that were bullying the Israelites. The Philistines were bullying them, and so the people got upset, and they came to Samuel, and they said, this is great having you as a high priest, but I think we're ready for a king. And so Samuel went to God, and he talked with God, and God said, yes, it's okay to give them a king. And so he went out, and he found the tallest, most attractive, most athletic person, and he said, you will be our king. And his name was Saul. Unlike David, Saul had a few things good and a majority of things bad, and ultimately we're told that God's favor left Saul and God had rejected him from being king. And so this leads up to our passage today. We have a high priest who chose a king that that has failed God and failed the people, and he's left called by God to go search for a new king. 
And so here our text begins, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he went to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this is just the, the intro to our text today, and what I want to note is just three things, because there's a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of scheming going on here. So the first thing to pay attention to is, is notice that Samuel is deeply grieved here. I imagine that Samuel feels like he has failed the people of Israel, and he has failed God. And so we see a very lowly, distraught Samuel that's almost being kind of picked up and encouraged by God, saying, come on, it's okay, like, I'm in control, I'm going to do this. Which leads to the second point. In this text, we see that God is totally in control here. God is calling the shots, and God is actually giving commands, very specific things, like grab a ram's horn, of, grab a ram's horn and fill it with oil and go to the specific town. Find the specific family, and I'm going to do the specific thing. I even have a specific decoy cow, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Lastly, notice that that the people in this text are afraid. They're afraid. They're fearful. Samuel thinks, I could die if I do this. And the people are trembling when they see the high priest come to their town. And I think so often when we read these ancient texts, we forget the political backdrop that's happening. In this story, Saul is still the king. Nothing's happened to his reign. He knows he's vulnerable. I think he feels insecure and there's this tension with he and the high priest, which is a big deal but he's still in control. So the act of a high priest going to this town and anointing a new king, this is treason. This has political ramifications. Back then, these people justifiably could have been killed by Saul. So the stakes are high. This is the backdrop for our passage today. But so far, things have gone according to plan. Jesse, along with his sons, are gathered with Samuel and his readers I feel like we believe that God is going to deliver here. We can see everything has gone according to plan. It's in the following verses that I'd like to examine three key points where I think we can learn more about who God is. You ready? Okay, so the first text, verses 6 through 7. When they came, he looked on Eliab, which is Jesse's first son, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The first lesson for you today is that God does not merely look, but God sees. God does not merely look, but God sees. I really struggled to find a translation that I wanted to use here um, because actually in this text in the Hebrew language, there's two words used for vision. And the first is nabat. 
And this word nabat literally translates as to look, to gaze, to kind of fix your eyes in a direction. And this is the kind of looking that we see Samuel doing. Samuel sees the first son and he looks at his outward appearance and he makes an assumption that this must be the one. But on the contrary, he gets called out by God and God says, you fool, you're only looking, but I can see. And the word he uses there is ra'ah. I can ra'ah. And the translation for this word ra'ah is not just to look, but it's to perceive, to understand, to comprehend, to dig beneath the surface, to see what's really going on in the inner workings. Have you ever been looking at something that someone else was able to see? Have you ever looked at something that someone else was able to see? This happens to me pretty frequently, especially during movies. It's been a long time since I've gone to the movie theaters with two little kids, but I remember before we had kids, we went to the theater with Jim, my father-in-law, who's here today. Shout out to Jim. And we saw the movie Interstellar. It was very clear when we walked out of that theater that I had only looked at this movie. I had no clue what had just happened, and I thought surely nobody else knew what was going on. Something about Iowa or a cornfield, a drone went down, Matthew McConaughey, he had to go to space, he was on some planet with this giant wave and it was super stressful, and then he couldn't communicate because he was in a different dimension, and that just like lived so far outside my brain. And we walk out of the theater and Jim's like, well there's like this, I, I can't even say what he's saying, but like time-space continuum and there's these kind of dimensions and we live in this many dimensions, but you know, nowadays they think there's these dimensions and it's it is a gift to be able to see, isn't it? It is a gift to be able to see. Anyone can look at an object, but to truly see something is a gift. In this text, God tells Samuel that he sees more than we humans see. God sees the heart. He sees the core, the inner being, the story behind the story behind the story. Today, we live in an age where we can curate a literal image for ourselves. Perhaps today we are fixated more on appearance than ever before. We are so concerned about how we view to the world, how we present to the world, that I think we spend a great deal of time avoiding the pain and the conflict and the turmoil that's within on the inside. On the opposite side of the coin, we live in a world today where it's so easy for us to look at someone else and quickly make assumptions and judgments without truly knowing their life story and what they've been through. In this verse, we learn that it is God who can truly see. The second lesson today, in the next four verses, it reads this. Then Jesse called the next son, Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of the sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and he brought him in, and now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. I think this is my, my favorite part of the text, and the lesson I want to draw out from here is that God loves to use the unexpected underdog. God loves to use the unexpected underdog. K. 
Can you imagine the high priest visits your town? Like, they're trembling when that happened because that was such a big deal. And he calls out this one father who had a lot of kids. And he says, I want to anoint one of your children to be king. And so this dad is excited and he gathers his sons and they go through this ceremonial ritual. They're sanctified and then they pass by and it's nope, 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 nope. And then this question, any more? Do you have any more kids? Are you kidding me? Seven wasn't enough for you? And he's like, well, yeah, there's the eighth. There's the one that was so insignificant. I didn't think to bring him when I thought you would anoint one of my sons. There's the one who, instead of being at this party, is at home doing chores. Yeah, there is the one that, oh yeah, if you want to anoint him, I have to leave. I have to go walk all the way over there. Then I have to come back and bring him, the unexpected one. That is the person God chose. And I love that we get this detail later, like, he's not a dud, you know, because you expect the eighth, like, surely, like, this is... No, we're told he's handsome. He has beautiful eyes. And I had never heard this term. He was ruddy. He had red hair, fair complexion. Does this sound familiar to you guys? I'm pretty sure this is Mark Charbonneau. Man, look at that. If only... Let's go back to that picture real quick. If only David could have had this flowing mane, silky smooth hair. I think... We need to recommission Michelangelo. He got the six-pack, but I don't know if he got the face totally right. In all seriousness, unlike most kings and rulers throughout history of humanity, David was not chosen out of a royal heritage. He didn't have a fortunate birth order. He didn't come from an advantaged family of wealth or social status. He didn't do anything to set him apart. He didn't show great wisdom. He wasn't leading people. He hadn't accomplished any military victories up to this point in the story. Up to this point in the story, he wasn't popular and known throughout the region or distinguished in any way. The idea of God selecting unexpected underdogs is not new in this story. In fact, almost any story in the Bible of God choosing someone, odds are they had to overcome great odds. Just to name two really quickly, there's, there's Abraham who was told, your descendants are going to become a great nation. And Abraham's like, you're joking me, right? I'm super old and I have no kids. Like this is who God chose to, to begin a nation. And then there's Moses, this guy, he killed an Egyptian. He had to flee to the desert where he spent 40 years just escaping and living as sort of this hippie nomad. And God calls him and says, I want you to go back and take all the, the Israelites out of captivity from Egypt. And he's like, I can't even communicate well. Over and over and over, the people we see God choosing are unexpected underdogs. If you feel today like the odds are stacked against you, or if you feel like you don't meet a set of standards and expectations, I hope you take great courage from the story of David that God loves to use the unexpected underdog. The third point today is found in the final verse, verse 13 of this passage. It's this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. The third point I want to highlight to you today is that God's anointing was one of the Spirit. God, David's anointing was one of God's Spirit. 
The first thing Samuel does is he does this ceremonial anointing. And this word anointing literally just means to smear or rub oil on. And this was this ancient practice where whenever there was a leader chosen, like someone was going to be a prophet or a priest or a king, the people would rub oil on as a sign of God's protection and provision for that person. It was a ceremonious, symbolic act. But what's significant here is what happens immediately after this. Because immediately after this, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from this day forward. This is not a common occurrence in the Old Testament. And what is clear is that David was incredibly favored to receive this blessing from God. As one marked by God's Spirit, we see in David God's desire to work and use this human being for God's own purposes and plans. So we should pay attention to the rest of David's life. Notice, David did not do anything in this passage to impress and win over God. David did not have to achieve anything or earn anything or strive for anything. On the contrary, David wasn't even present until Samuel made this special request. We can combine this passage with the underdog characters mentioned before and conclude that God loves to choose incapable people because God loves to show God's ability power, and authority in the world by giving his very own spirit. Now, stepping back real quickly, I was studying this text. These points spoke to me and became pretty clear this is what is going on in this text. But what I struggled with was, how does this connect to me? I felt this disconnect from this passage, and I didn't really know where it preached because to me this seems like a fairy tale. God is calling like such a specific person in history to be a king. Like what about just like an ordinary me, you know? And what about the first seven brothers? Like what a bummer for these guys. Like really? Just one in eight gets this cool thing from God? I then began to think, I think when studying David, we have an opportunity and rather perhaps an obligation to connect back to Jesus because Jesus himself associated as the new David. After David's reign, the prophets would talk about one day the Messiah would come in the spirit of David. And throughout the Gospels, we see this attempt over and over and over to connect Jesus to David. And so I want to offer today to look back at these three points through the lens of the life and ministry of Jesus. So here we go. Point one, God doesn't merely look but God sees. Jesus saw people. Jesus saw people. He saw their realities, their problems, the social injustices beneath the surface. He saw the story beneath the story beneath the story. The power struggles, the politics, the circumstances. Jesus saw people. As Mark preached on a couple weeks ago, he saw the Samaritan woman at the well someone he wasn't supposed to associate with, someone who went to this well in the middle of the day so that she wouldn't be seen. And Jesus approaches her, he sees her, and pretty quickly he identifies, he knows about her past. He knows her struggles, he knows about the five husbands that she's had, and he offers her living water. He lets her know that she is known by God and she is loved. And we see this character run back to her community, not afraid of people anymore, but announcing that the Messiah had come. 
We're told another story where Jesus is walking and there's a crowd of Jews around him and he sees a small person in a tree named Zacchaeus. And this person, Zacchaeus, is the chief tax collector. And a little bit of history that makes this so crazy is this is the time that that Rome has occupied Israel. So that that Israel is in captivity of Rome and they're imposing tax rates, some scholars have said, up to 85%. Can you imagine 85% tax rates? And Jesus is with these Jewish people and he sees the chief tax collector, someone probably so hated. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down. I see you and I want to have friendship with you. I want to go to your house and have dinner. Jesus saw the Roman centurion soldier. He saw the garrison who was demon-possessed and the guy that lived in the cemetery. He saw those with mental illness. He saw the thief being executed beside him. And to all these people, he offered hope and forgiveness. He provided a way for restoration, an ability to truly live an alternative life of joy and peace. And it wasn't because they had life figured out. Jesus didn't just see people who were neatly put together. He saw those who were broken. So often, we make such an attempt to look good. We're so driven for our appearance and how we portray to the world. We want everybody to think we have everything together. And anything broken and hurting, we just shove aside. We avoid conflict and pain and the struggle that exists in our life. And we put on a show as to somehow impress those around us and somehow impress God. There's a verse that was read at our wedding. It's from Romans 12, and it says, Love must be sincere. And this word sincere... Uh, It comes from a Latin word that means without wax. Kind of weird, right? And this, this meaning of without wax came from ancient pottery. Pottery that was sold would often crack and chip and break, and so to buy a pot without wax meant you risked you risk having a leaky pot. And so what Jesus is saying is for love to be sincere, it means I want you to love without wax. I want you to love with your blemishes, with cracks, with your struggles with who you truly are, because that is unconditional love. Just as God truly saw David, we are truly seen. And because of Jesus, we can live without wax. Because of Jesus, we do not have to hide. Because we are seen, we are known, and we are loved. The second point, God loves to use the unexpected underdog. We see this lesson no greater than in God sending Jesus. Born in a manger to an unwed teen, forced to flee Egypt to escape death from an oppressive king. Jesus' reign and authority was so alternative to the conventional wisdom of the world. Jesus consistently disregarded social and political and religious boundaries of his time. He consistently drew upon women and foreign outcasts as the protagonist of his stories. He welcomed and literally touched people with diseases in a time when scientific understanding of the body was so primitive The only solution was just to ban people from being around anybody else. The religious leaders of Jesus' time would question his authority on the premise that Jesus would invite the poor into his home and he would sit them in seats of prominence. And he would say things like, the last will be first. Just as God... Oh, the examples can go on and on, but in the Gospels we see Jesus and calling and associating and welcoming the most unexpected underdog society could possibly present. To be a part of this movement, to be, to be a part of Jesus' movement, to receive the Spirit of God, you don't have to fit some status quo. 
Your life doesn't have to meet a set of standards. We don't have to get somewhere to be acceptable to, to Jesus because Jesus went to people. Wherever you are right now, you are enough. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Just as God chose David, God loves to use unexpected people. And as Jesus' ministry towards others reveals, you don't have to meet a certain criteria to be welcomed in. The final point, the conclusion today, is that God anoints with spirit. While we see God's spirit given in the Old Testament in pretty rare and unusual times, like David, for example, we see Jesus promoting the spirit of God to all. To his followers, Jesus says in Luke 11, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And John 3.34 says, The one God has sent, he speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. One of my favorite stories of Jesus' ministry is when he gathers his disciples and he sends them out into the city to proclaim the good news. And he tells them, I give you all authority under heaven to go and heal people who are sick and to free people from their brokenness and their bondage. And he says, you will be persecuted. You will be arrested and you will be sent before governors and officials. But don't fear what to say or how to say it. For it won't be you speaking, but the spirit of the Father speaking through you. Jesus was constantly pointing towards and leading people to participate in God's spirit. As Jesus was preparing his followers for his death, he told them that God would soon in his place send an advocate. He would send his Holy Spirit to his people and that this person would remind them of the teachings of Jesus and let them know how they can live in oneness with God. Paul, who's a first-generation Christian, he said this about the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Or 1 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. One more time. Paul says, God anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. Because of God's Holy Spirit, we belong to God. Because of God's Holy Spirit, we are called beloved children of God. It's by this Holy Spirit. This isn't just for one king in ancient Israel. This is for the entire church. This is the good news, the gospel that you are enough, that you are seen, and you have access to God's Holy Spirit. In God's Holy Spirit, you are a daughter of God. God. In God's Holy Spirit, you are a son of God. As the Spirit of the Lord was given to David, so too can we participate in God's Spirit today. As anointed people who belong to God, this means that we live according to the alternative ways of God's kingdom. This means that we are called to live a life of peace and nonviolence in a violent and hurting world. This means that as we live in a world of fear and banning people out, we live in a world of hospitality and grace. 
This means that in a world of reciprocity, an eye for an eye, this means that we live a life of forgiveness. This means in a broken and hurting world, it means that we live with true joy and true peace and true hope. So friends, as David was seen by God, as he was chosen as an unexpected underdog, and as he was given God's spirit, so too are you seen by God and you are loved. You are, enough from, you are enough for God and you do not have to get to a certain standard and you are welcome to participate in God's Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you. Amen.